Um, if, if you want to turn in your Bible to the book of James, we are in week 10 of our series of going verse by verse through this great book. And if you want to look on the bookshelf up here today, you'll see where we're going to spend most of our time. Most of our time will be spent in James. We're going to spend probably almost an equal amount of time in the, in the book of Matthew where Jesus had some very important words that really parallel. I, I think that James was thinking about these teachings of Jesus when he wrote this letter. And we're also going to be over here in 1 Timothy. We're going to spend a couple of verses in 1 Timothy. So give you an idea of where we're going to be today. Um, it's interesting because this particular passage of James, I'm reading it and I'm like, Man, it's, it's kind of hard to put a positive spin on this passage. You know, I mean, James is just downright negative in this passage. And last week, I'd made this comment where I said, you know, James is writing this letter to, to rebuke and to correct and to encourage and to love and to do all of these things at the same time. And I said, he's not writing to win friends and influence people. I, I should have saved that for today because this is definitely the, the feeling that I got while I read this. But I have to remind you of this. When James wrote this letter, and when the first church, the first generation church received this letter, they didn't read just a few verses each week and talk about it. They sat there and they read from beginning to end through this entire letter. So there wasn't just this one little negative passage that they covered in a week. So I'm going to do my best to, uh, to, to tell you what I believe James was, was warning us about. And then we're going to look at some words of Jesus and I think find a very positive application for ourselves. And as we go through this self-evaluation week by week, where we're, you know, James is saying, hey, look at this and evaluate this in your life. We have to keep reminding ourselves of this application for the entire series God's expectation for me is progress, not perfection. So, uh, yeah, I fail. Yeah, I don't do this really well. Yeah, there are a lot of things I don't do very well. But one thing that I can do is I can show a little bit of progress day by day, year by year, decade by decade. And, and when you think about showing a little bit of progress over the years, boy, that really adds up to make a, a significant change in our lives. So God's expectation for me is not that I'm going to do all of these things perfectly all the time, but that I can show some progress along the way. I read something that kind of floored me this, this past week. One thing that I read is that we spend about 10 hours a day on our devices, on our phones, on our laptops, on our checking our email, looking at Facebook, about 10 hours a day. And that kind of blew me away a little bit, but part of me just says, you know what, for a lot of us, it's just kind of the world that we're born into or the world that we're in now. Okay, yeah, they didn't have Facebook when I was born, but, but it's kind of the world that I live and I operate in now. And so some of that is just the way it is. I, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just kind of the way it is. But then I read this, okay, and this is really interesting. Through the five major media outlets, okay, so through TV, radio, internet, which encompasses like Facebook and everything, okay, through the internet, newspaper, and magazines, through those five major media outlets, we are exposed to 360 ads every day. 360 ads a day, 360 commercials trying to sell some product, good, or service, 360 times a day. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but you know what, man, I, I watch Netflix, and I, fa I use the DVR, and I fast forward through the commercials and all that. Well, we already take that into account, because what happened is, during the heyday, these ads spiked at around 700 a day. 
And then we got really good at using pop-up blockers and stuff and, and weeding out nearly half of them. And so even with all of that other technological use that we have to kind of weed through all of that, um, just in these five major media outlets, not talking about everything that we, that we look at, the billboards as we drive down the road and, and all that kind of stuff, but just in these five, we see an average of about 360 ads a day just through here. So 360 times every single day, you are being told, hey, you need this thing. Hey, that thing that you have is not good enough. That thing is old. That thing is obsolete. Here's the new thing that you need. Here's the new good, the new product, the new service that will change your life, that will just make everything great. Here's what you need to be cool. Here's what you need to get the girl. Here's what you need. Taylor, I can't see your balloon. Come on, buddy. I can see her ring from up here. I want to see your balloon from up here. It's 360 times a day you're being told, here's what you need to be cool. Here's what you need to be successful. Here's what you need to get the girl. Here's what you need so that all the other guys want to smell like you, okay? Here's what you need. And we're just bombarded with this over and over again. We're being pulled towards discontentment. We're being sucked into the perpetual desire of wanting, of getting, of having, and of keeping stuff. And it's toxic. It is a toxic lie that will never, ever satisfy. But it's not a new problem. This problem has existed. Bless you. This problem has existed. I heard that some people sneeze instead of saying amen. But it, that was a sneeze. That was a sneeze in agreement. And I appreciate it, sister. Okay. But even before this technology, this problem existed. So listen to the words of James. We're in James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James is writing to Christians here in the church, and here's the problem that he addresses today. He says, now listen, you rich people. Yeah, some of you are going, ah, I'll get to that. Listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So here's what's going on in the church, okay? James is talking to some people here. He's talking to people that have more than they need, okay? People who are living in abundance. There were a lot of people during that day that didn't have everything that they needed to, to survive. James is addressing these words to the people that have plenty. They have more than they need. And, and, uh, and he's saying, well, let me ask you this. Was he condemning anyone for being rich? No, he's not condemning them for being rich. He's not condemning them for being wealthy. He is condemning them because they're misusing their resources. So let's, let's go on with this. These people are professing to be Christians. They're professing to be followers of Jesus Christ. They are associating themselves with the church, but their real God was their money. And everything that they love, James says, all the fine food that you're eating and and, and all, of the, all of the fancy clothes and all of the gold and silver jewelry, all of the money that you're, that you're accumulating, all of that is going to decay. All of that is going to disappear. And he says, you guys are living as if Jesus is never coming back and you have no one to answer to. That's the way that you're living your lives. 
Some of their wealth had even been gathered by defrauding and oppressing the people that work for them. James says God hears their cries. He hears their cries for justice. He hears their cries for for security and for provision. And after robbing their workers to help them accumulate even more wealth, these rich are indulging themselves in an extravagant lifestyle, consumed with the pursuit of pleasure and everything that money can buy. And he compares them to fattened cattle that are getting ready for the slaughter. He says, listen, you know, you have indulged yourselves with no limits and judgment is coming. This hoarding had led to fraud, which had led to self-indulgence, which had consumed these rich people to the point that they will do anything to sustain the lifestyle that they are enjoying. Even go to court and take, take advantage of other people. Some of you right now are thinking, okay, so he's talking to the rich people. He ain't talking to me. He's talking to the rich people. Well, let me, let me tell you about the definition of rich here. My first job in ministry, which was in 1992, so that was, how long ago was that? 23 years? 23 years. So 23 years ago, my first job, my first full-time job after graduation in ministry, and I was married, and, and there, was, there was no parsonage allowance. There was no 401k that was set aside. There was no health insurance. There were no benefits. It was just my total package was $25,000 a year. That was my first full-time job in ministry, $25,000 a year. And, and here's what I got to tell you about that salary. If I were making that salary today, $25,000 a year, I would still be in the top 2% of the wealthiest people on the planet. $25,000 a year, the top 2% of wealth in the world. 25% of the world's population today doesn't even have clean drinking water. UNICEF tells us that 22,000 children die every day. 22,000 children die every day due to extreme poverty. And they, and they often die And quiet, they die often in some remote village unnoticed by the rest of the world, unnoticed by you and me. Some countries still have what is called a caste system, which means that generation after generation, you're either born into the very, very rich or the very, very poor. There is no middle class. There is no way to work your way up from being poor to being rich. If you are in this poor caste, your children will be there. Your children's children will be there. They will just be there forever and ever. And so, friends, look around the room. This is the rich. This is the elite when you look at the world's standards. So I want to look at just a couple of ground rules, and you can fill in these bullet point blanks on your outline. And and, and first thing that I have to say is you are rich, okay? So we are all rich. James is talking to us. But the next thing that I want to say, and you can write this in your notes, is that money is not bad, but it is dangerous, Money is not bad, but it is dangerous. He's not condemning them for being wealthy, but he's warning them that they have to be very careful about their attitudes towards their wealth. I want you to think about money kind of being like fire, okay? Fire's not good or bad. Fire is very important. Fire is very useful. Fire gives us light. It gives us heat. It gives us energy. But that same fire out of control can burn down an entire city, right? So money is not bad, but it is dangerous. And the next Fill in the blank on your outline is that the heart can be deceptive. The heart can be deceptive. Money and our desire for money will tell more about our hearts than our mouths and our actions combined. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry, but in truth, 
they are what cause anxiety. That rich people have more anxiety than many, many poor people. I can remember that uh, when, when Janine and I were first married, I was, when I first met her, I was driving this old beat up Jeep Cherokee. It was old and it was, but you know, I was just happy and I just drove that thing around. Well, eventually got to the point that it was just in terrible shape. I'm not mechanical, so I hadn't corrected some things along the way. And it got to the point where it was just going to be easier and it was going to be cheaper to just let it go than it would be to fix everything. Okay. And so, and so I, I couldn't even sell it. It was in such bad shape. I couldn't even sell it. And so I donated, donated it to the blind, which doesn't, which doesn't seem very nice, but I, they came and towed it, and I wasn't there, so I didn't, so anyhow, I donated it to the blind, they came, picked it up, and they towed it away, and, and, uh, and then, you know, I was driving a company car at the time, and so I wasn't in a big hurry to replace it, but one day, Janine called me on the phone, and I was at work, and she said, hey, I found a car that I think would be perfect for you, and I said, okay. And she said, do you want to come by and look at it? And I said, no, just if you think it's right, just, just get it. I'll come, by, I'll come by on my way home from work, and I'll sign whatever needs to be signed. And so when I went by, to, to, and she told me a little bit about it, but I just, I didn't care. It's a car. You know, a car's a car. And so I, I went by to sign it. She had already taken the car home, so I didn't even get to see it when I went to sign the papers and everything that needed to be signed. And so it was already home. And so then I got home, and she wasn't home. She, and, she wasn't even there. And so eventually she came driving in this car and it wasn't a brand new car but it was it was like one year old and had very low mileage so it was like new to me but it was a it was a dodge charger and it was this beautiful silver it was a really really pretty car probably the prettiest car that i've ever owned you know i'm sure beautiful car and i came to really love that car and i i came all of a sudden when i was driving the old beat up jeep cherokee i didn't care where i parked I didn't think about stuff like that, but all of a sudden now, you know, it's like I'm parking in the back of the mall parking lot and hoofing it a quarter of a mile or so, you know, to get in there. I'm taking up two parking spaces. I'm parking sideways. I'm driving around the block until, you know, and I, I'm, I'm like, I really began to care about this car in ways that I hadn't cared about a car in a long time. And, and then one day this happened. A kid spilled a drink in the back seat, and my perfect mint interior was never going to be the same. And I blew a gasket. And, and Janine very calmly and politely and respectfully spoke to me and, uh, and, and just reminded me of, uh, this is a car, and, and that's a kid, you know? This is temporary. This, this is not a big deal. This is what's important. This is not important. And you know what? I really took that lesson, and, and I'm not saying that I've been perfect since that day, but I took that lesson, and it really did begin to change my attitude about the car and about stuff, and, and I've really tried to carry that with me. Now, later on, I, it, which really, if, if it hadn't been for that lesson, this may have pushed me over the edge, but later on, I actually met a stop sign with that car and just tore up the entire side from, from bumper to bumper, tore up the side with a stop sign. It's a long story, but I, if it hadn't been for me beginning to develop the attitude, it's a car, I think that would have just destroyed me because in the beginning, that was my baby. I, I cared about it, and I vacuumed it all the time, and I washed it all the time. Now, you've, if you've seen my Jeep, you know, it's like I don't, I don't know when it was washed. I just, I just don't care that much about it. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us that, you know, the world wants to trick you into thinking that the more you have and the nicer you have and the more that you spend, it will actually free you from anxiety. But he's saying that's often not the case. It often just gives you more anxiety about the stuff that you're surrounding yourself with. 
So money's not bad, but it is dangerous. Your heart can be deceptive and tricking, trick you into having more anxiety when you think that you're going to release yourself from anxiety. And then the, the, this next bullet point is that the love of money is deadly. And, and you've probably heard that before. The love of money is deadly. Money's not deadly. Money's not bad or, or good. But the love of money, it can be deadly. We can begin to develop this, this appetite that will never be satisfied. And here's why. Because we are eternal beings trying to satisfy ourselves with temporary stuff. All right? We are eternal beings, and we think that, that the, the real hunger that we have is going to be satisfied with stuff that is not eternal, stuff that is just temporary. So Paul's addressing the church in this book, 1 Timothy, a letter that he wrote to the young preacher, Timothy. And and he's addressing a problem that was happening in the church there, which was there were some people that were coming in and they were trying to use the church to to help themselves gain riches. They were trying to get rich on the people that were in the church. I kind of say that uh, he was talking about the, the first generation of televangelists, you know. If you'll just send me $199, then I will send you this hanky that I wiped the sweat from my forehead as I was preaching from God's word, and it will truly be a blessing to you forever and ever. You know, and so people are falling into that because they want to be blessed by God, and they're being tricked, and they're being deceived. And so Paul is addressing this, and in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, here's what Paul says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and, and pierced themselves with many grieves. And I kept thinking, and I kind of tried to do a little studying, but I wasn't finding the right kind of statistics. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and you just kind of check your gut and and just think about what your gut tells you on this. But how much crime has the love of money at its core? How much crime? I couldn't find a statistic, but my gut tells me that it's almost all crime. It's not all crime, but almost all crime. Here's another question. How much crime is done by people who already have a lot but want even more because of their greed and their desire and their selfish appetites? Again, I think that it's probably a lot. I I heard a story about a farmer that walked into the kitchen one day and he met his wife. He was all smiles. He was really excited. And she was like, what's what's going on? What's so great? And he said, our our prized cow, our favorite cow has just given birth to, to twins, a brown one. And a, and a white one. And he said, and, and I'm so excited that I feel the impulse to dedicate one of these young cows. It's, there's a name for that, right? There's calf. calf. One of these calves I want to dedicate. The farmer knew which word to use. But he said, I, I feel the impulse to dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. And so, and so what we'll do is we'll raise them side by side. We'll raise them just the same. And then when they are of age, we'll go to the market and we'll sell them. And we'll take the proceeds from one of them for ourselves. And we'll take the proceeds from the other one and we'll give it to God. And his wife said, okay, well, which one is the Lord's cow? The brown one or the white one? Which one's going to be the Lord's cow? And he said, oh, there's no need to worry about that. You know, we're going to raise them together. We're going to raise them side by side. There's no need to rush into that. Well, some time went by, and then he walked into that same kitchen one day. His wife was in there. This time he was walking slowly, and his head was down, and he was very, very sad. And she said, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And he said, honey, I have terrible news. The Lord's cow died. (laughs) So why is it? 
that it's always the Lord's cow that dies. You know where I'm going? You know, you could even say that the Lord took his cow home. <laughs> but I guess the fact is, someone actually snorted over here. I don't, I don't know who it was. But I guess the fact is that we all tend to lay up treasures on earth. And we all have this sin nature in us. We all have this sin in us, this experience from our past that, that seems to drag us down to earth. It's kind of like a magnet. It's kind of like gravity. And so we have to prioritize things in our lives. And it seems that when we do prioritize things, it's usually God's cow that dies. So let's look at this passage from Matthew where Jesus is preaching. It's near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Now, I've said this a couple of times in this series, that if you take the book of James and you take the Sermon on the Mount, you can lay them side by side, and it seems a lot of times that James is sort of giving a commentary on the teachings of Jesus, and this is certainly true today. So Jesus, he is speaking directly to this perspective of of life in these verses, And, and I think he gives us some tremendous insight into how we should really be able to view the wealth that we experience in our lives. You know, someone once said, and I'm sure you've heard this, that when you die, they only put one thing in the box. You know what that is, right? It's you, okay? That's what they put in the box. And, and, and you know, someone said, there are no pockets in shrouds, and you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You know, you've heard all those things, although I know someone did that just to be funny. But, but generally speaking, you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And, and, and the reason that they say this is so important, because, you know, as, as Paul just said to Timothy, you know, you can't take it with you. You're not going to take it with you. We brought nothing into this world. We'll take nothing out of this world. And in spite of all of these things that we know about how our wealth and how temporary it is, we are basically prone to wanting to acquire things in our lives. And in this passage, Jesus, as James, they both, they tell us that we, we have to strive, we have to work very, very hard to have the right view of stuff. And so everyone must make these three choices as we go through this passage. And the first choice that you're going to be challenged to make is to invest in treasure on earth or in heaven. Okay, you're going to have to make that choice. Am I going to invest in treasures on earth or am I going to invest in treasures in heaven? So Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 19, the words of Jesus Christ. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and and vermin, gotta love the word vermin, you don't see that in the Bible all the time, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So to the people that Jesus was speaking to on this day, they had this attitude because the Pharisees really taught this attitude and lived this attitude that the richer they were, the more that they were being blessed by God. When God blesses me with riches, it is because God, you know, I'm so righteous, I'm so holy that God just pours out his blessings on me. God's just unloading his blessings on me. And Jesus is saying that's not the case at all. In fact, Jesus had already said, in, in Matthew 19, 24, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. It's not, it's not impossible, but it's very, very difficult. It's very, it's very difficult for a rich man to go to heaven. And that was shocking for these people to hear because to them, riches was a stamp of approval on your life. You were rich because God gave it to you because you were so righteous And they were greedily gathering riches and money. And the richer that they became, the more that they tried to make everybody else think that they were super spiritual giants. 
But as we go through this, I, I just I want to remind you this one more time. Don't misunderstand this passage. Don't allow God's word to, to say something that it's not saying. God is not against wealth. God is not against stuff. There are many examples in Scripture of godly people who were wealthy. Abraham, Solomon, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Tabitha. There are many, many examples of wealthy people in the Bible. Jesus isn't addressing how much stuff someone has, but rather how they view their stuff. How you view your stuff, how I view my stuff, how we see it and how we use it. Jesus is addressing the heart. How your stuff on the outside has an effect on you on the inside. So number one, invest in treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. And then the second choice that we have to make, number two in your notes, live in darkness or in light. Am I going to live in darkness or am I going to live in light? Jesus continues in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I used to take this section of Scripture and think that Jesus was talking about something else, that it was just, you know, he was just kind of all over the place. But right before this passage, he's talking about wealth and treasures and earthly treasures. Right after it, he does as well. So put it into context. Jesus is continuing to talk about the same theme here. And he's talking about your eye being healthy and the light that comes into it and and, and the darkness that can be there if you're not letting the right kind of light in. The word for healthy is actually a really interesting word here in the Greek. And it's connected to the same word in the Greek that we often translate in English as the word generous. The word healthy is connected to the word generous. And if you have a generous eye, if you recognize opportunities, if you recognize the needs that other people have, if you are able to see people through the, through the eyes of God and you desire to be generous in your response to their needs, then you are full of light. In other words, the Bible warns against greed and hastiness. It warns against being rich because so many people didn't handle their wealth in a way that honored God. And so we have to choose. Are we going to invest in treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? We have to choose. Are we going to live in the darkness? Are we going to live in light? And the third choice that we have to make, will I serve money or will I serve God? Will I serve money or will I serve God? Jesus continues in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one. You'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can't serve them both. The problem here is the heart of man. And our hearts are naturally greedy. And Jesus with his teaching and James with his warning, they want to divert our heart away from that greed. And they want to point us towards generosity. They want to divert us away from this desire to accumulate more and more stuff and, and these selfish for selfish reasons. And we have to handle our possessions, our money, and our wealth, and our luxury like we do everything else. And, and here's, you can write this in your notes, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, everything that you do, do it all for the glory of God. So whatever riches you have, whatever wealth you have been blessed with, however you use those things, do them for the glory of God. Everything that you do, do for the glory of God. And I want you to hear this, Okay. I hope you have stuff. I hope you have stuff that brings you joy. 
I hope that you save up to provide for your family. I hope that you enjoy nice vacations. And I hope that you do all of these things in a way that honors God. Because really there's one choice, and that is how will we properly handle our wealth? Because we are wealthy, we are blessed, that's for sure. So the Lord doesn't give us some kind of absolute legalistic standard here. And he says, okay, if you do this, this, and this, then you will be pleasing me with your attitude towards your wealth. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us a principle. He gives us a principle like treasure up, you know, lay up treasure in heaven or serve God, not money. He gives us these principles. And we kind of look back and we say, well, that's kind of vague. I, I need, I want something else, you know. I want something else that I can check off the list. and I can say, okay, I did that. Now I'm, you know, I'm making God happy because I did that. But he's vague for a very important reason. He's vague enough that he's dealing with our attitudes and not just some some external formula. And so I hope that you'll be ready to allow God to, to change your attitude and to change your heart towards the wealth and the blessings that you have. Write this in your notes. God doesn't want my money. He wants my heart. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. So the question today is, where is your heart? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? What do you spend most of your time and your energy working toward? Is it a thing? Is it, is it stuff? And what is the reason for these things and for this stuff? So that letter that we read, that portion from, from Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy, Paul continues. I stopped a little bit early. Let me tell you what Paul said. 1 Timothy 16, now I'm going to read verses 17, 18, and 19. He goes on to say, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And you know what? This church is such a beautiful example of this kind of unselfishness. And I'll give you a couple of examples. And, and this isn't an exhaustive list, and so I'm sure that you know, other examples you'll think of. But you guys, some of you were introduced to Mylene just a few minutes ago when we announced that she was baptized this past week. And what you don't know, because she didn't want you to know, but I'm going to tell on her, is that this whole idea of us starting a library and filling up a bookshelf with, with books that can encourage you and help you to learn God's Word was her idea. And she has personally donated 90% of those books books for your enjoyment and encouragement. And so that is an example of this. Another example of this kind of generosity is the Henson family that is inviting us to their home today for a picnic where their hospitality is being provided for, you know, this generosity for our own encouragement and our enjoyment as a church family. And every single week here in this place, there are people that, that prepare and that, that come together to work and to show our children love in the other room. There are people that, that prepare to teach Bible studies. There are people, and I'm talking about volunteers, I'm not talking about myself, but there are people that, that do all of these things. There are people that work really hard to learn this music and to rehearse and to get up here and to lead us into the presence of God through our worship. There are people that are doing all of these kinds of things. There are people that come and clean the building and and all these things that you don't know about, that you don't think about. And all of these things are a beautiful picture of generosity where we take our eyes off of ourselves and we put our eyes on God and we think about doing the things that we do 
to honor him and to have that kind of attitude. And anytime you see a picture of generosity in, the church, in this church, I pray that it, it points you to God because it is an illustration. It is a snapshot picture of God's generosity for us. Write this in your notes. The generosity of the gospel can set me free from my selfish desire for stuff. The generosity of the gospel can set me free. Because that is the whole story of the gospel. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's generosity. That is the purest picture of generosity. And so when we are generous to each other, and especially for purposes of God, it is a beautiful reminder of what God has done for us. And the world wants to define you by the clothes that you wear, the house that you live in, or the car that you drive, or the amount of jewelry that you have. That's how the world wants to define you. But you're able to say, no, I'm I'm set free from the world's standards. No, I find my identity in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I am a child of God. I am a forgiven sinner. That's my identity. And we are invited into the most dramatic mission in the history of the world to proclaim the great news of Jesus Christ right in the midst of this battle between darkness and light. So write this in your notes too. Much of my life will be determined by the kind of light that my eyes let in. Remember what Jesus said about your eyes and and the light that comes into your eyes and it becoming a lamp. Remember that. And if you begin to see people through God's eyes, if you begin to love people with God's heart, if you begin to be more generous towards people and to others and noticing their needs, it will change your attitude about everything in life. One of the best things that we can do for ourselves is to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look around us. John Piper is a preacher and an author, and he wrote these words, and I'm going to stick real close to the notes because I want you to hear exactly how he said this. His, his book was entitled, Don't Waste Your Life, and, and here's what he said. I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call the earth my home, and before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It's a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. Friends, we are in the middle of a battle. And the way that we the attitude that we have towards the wealth and the blessings that God has given us will have a great effect on how we fight this battle. God wants us to seek happiness and joy and pleasure, but we're supposed to, we're supposed to have an attitude towards these things that will honor God. This should have been a fill-in-the-blank on your outline because it came to me just much later, but, uh, and it rhymes, so it's really cool. So you're going write, to write this down. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Did you get that? (laughs) Write a song about that. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. It becomes the barometer. What makes you happy? What gives you pleasure? That is a barometer for what's going on in your heart. That is a barometer that will tell you 
where your treasure is. And so every week I've been giving you this challenge, this next step, and, and I'm going to give you a challenge right now that I think is not going to be an easy one. This hasn't been an easy passage for me to, to read and apply to my own life, much less share with you. But I want you to write these things in your notes. And I want you to prayerfully consider how you might be able to apply these challenges to your life. So here's the first one. This week, I will study my calendar for, for one month. What I mean by that is begin, study, look at the last 30 days of your calendar, okay? And discover where I place the treasure of my time. So this week, sit down with your calendar and begin to look at where you spend your time and you will begin to notice where you put the treasure of your time. And the second challenge is very similar. This week, I'll study my checkbook for the last 30 days to discover where I place the treasure of my finances. And I believe that when you begin to see where you're spending most of your time and where you're spending most of your money, you begin to recognize where your heart is. And friends, of course, the application is to to repent of selfishness. Repent of the, the times where you're pulled into this, where, where you begin to compare yourself to the world or compare yourself to other people that have things that you wish that you had. Repent of all of that and ask God to change your heart, but then begin to look for opportunities to do something about it. And I'll tell you, I said this earlier, there's no, there's no real easy way to put a positive spin on this passage from James, okay? Except to just keep reading to the next passage. But here, I want you to hear it one more time. This time I'm going to read from a paraphrase called The Message. But I want you to just, just listen to these words of James, okay? This is a paraphrase called The Message. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And listen, listen to this. And a final word to you, arrogant rich. Take some lessons and lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought that you were piling up wealth? What you've piled up is judgment. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the, wor- in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. Anybody want to go crochet that on a doily and hang it in your family room? That's lovely, isn't it? So each week... Each week, I've been giving you a memory verse, too. And I'm like, man, is it, there's not one positive memory verse I can give you. And so I'm giving you two. You can choose one of them, or you can memorize them both. They're very short. But from James chapter 5 and verse 2, here's the warning that James gives us. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Guys, everything that we have in this world is temporary. It's going to corrode. It's going to disappear. But then listen to this beautiful challenge that comes from Jesus in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's pretty positive when you think about it. And when you recognize what is your treasure and you recognize this is where my heart is, then you begin to realize that, um, man, I can make some changes. I can do this self-evaluation. I can look at myself in the mirror. I, be, I can begin to, to try to have healthy, generous eyes that shine a bright light in a dark place around me. God will bless that. God will use that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, again, we love you and we thank you. And 
pray that you'd be with us during these times when we are so challenged by your word. And Lord, I pray that, I pray that the applications that we make are very, just very common sense, really, that we're asking you to uh, shine your light in the dark places of our hearts and to, and to make that change and to make that difference. And Lord, I pray that the, the first step of recognizing you as Lord and Savior, receiving the free gift of your grace and your mercy, responding to that by being baptized and, and uh, officially joining a, a local gathering of Christians where we can use our gifts and our resources together to share your love with others. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us. And if that is anyone's decision today, Lord, I pray that today would be the day to make that. Today would be the day to celebrate that. And we thank you for all that we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.